Hello, and welcome to the very first kind of demo preview episode of Tracy Bond's Flying Circus. A year-long podcast celebrating 60 years of James Bond on the big screen. I'm Michaela Moody, a very long-time twi- uh, Bond fan, and I'm joined by someone who is very dear to me. That's me. It's me. Um, hi. I'm Who's Sarah. me? Oh my god. Shut up. Uh, so, I'm Sarah the Scrivener. I am a long-time girlfriend of Michaela Moody. Um, five years. And yep. uh, I am a short-term, short-time Bond fan. We started, uh, you started showing me these movies back in 2018, right? Yeah, like October, November 2018. You hadn't seen any of them except a couple, I think. Literally a couple. Specifically, yeah. Um, Yeah, Tomorrow Never Dies because of my Michelle Yeoh phase. Um, My very intense, yeah, the never ending Michelle Yeoh phase that began in middle school and is still going very strong. Um, And then I saw Skyfall in theaters because the marketing for it was very compelling. Um, Lots of people did. Yeah. I mean, that was the 50th anniversary, so... For, yeah, 50th, yeah. Yeah, it's 60 years this year, which is why we're doing this. And as in ter- going back to that, this may be released before or after the, a couple of episodes, but let's brief, in case it's before, why are we doing this? Why are we here? Basically, when we started watching these movies back in 2018, we started to have some very interesting conversations about like looking at them and what things aged, what didn't, what contexts, uh, cultural contexts were lost because we weren't living in the same time that these films came out in, as well as just the legacy of James Bond as a pop cultural phenomenon. Like, I had a lot of preconceived ideas of like what James Bond was going to be going into watching these films that ended up being totally wrong, and in some cases ended up being right and in, and sometimes just completely different things that I never would have expected. Um, I never would have expected that the most racist thing that I would ever see on film is a James Bond film. But like, whoo boy, it was there. But also some yeah. very interesting conversations about sex and gender to be had in these mm. films, uh, which you wouldn't expect. The way that we view it as as a culture in general doesn't necessarily allow for that and it's it's stuff that we will absolutely be getting into as we go along. Yeah. I don't see a lot of people talk about it in this greater context in an accessible way. I'm sure there are many a thesis written on James Bond as like a reflection yeah. of British culture, but they are really fascinating snapshots of of Britain's kind of culture and also like male fantasies but also like the ways that women have existed in films and the ways that those things have changed and the way that sex is viewed in films it's very very interesting i think the closest thing that the broader population culture whatever comes to talking about it on that kind of level is oddly enough discussing things like disfigurement and disability Mm -hmm. but that tends to be we, we we will get to that in, in a long while. It actually takes a bit of time for the films to get up and running in terms of disfigured villains. I felt the same way about women in these movies. Yeah. But, but like, it does not actually happen nearly as often as I expected it to going in, knowing that it was so important. 
But so the the final thing I will say is that we watched these movies. We started to have really interesting conversations about how people in the 21st century might look at these, especially the classic Bond movies, and how they were so different from what I kind of expected them to be as somebody who whose only experience through James Bond was the best movie ever with Michelle Yeoh, um, Tomorrow Never Dies, and then one of the Daniel Craig films. And how do you look at the classic Bond of Sean Connery and Roger Moore as a 21st century viewer? And on top of that, how do you look at it with the lens of race, gender, sexuality, disability, and disfigurement? And those conversations were very interesting to have and we thought it would be fun to bring in more people on that and and formally and have will. those conversations so we got a bunch of guests that will be joining us for films in the future we are not at liberty to tell you who they are right now partly because we haven't confirmed anyone but fun people fun people good fun people people you in, you'll enjoy but you, you you'll just be us for this episode this time we're going way way back 1954, it's a year after the first Bond book. first Bond novel was published by, uh, written by Ian Fleming, Casino Royale. We're going to be talking about a film, really it's a TV episode, that probably most of you may not have even heard of. It is oddly enough called Casino Royale, but it is not the Casino Royale that you may be familiar with. No, this is an adaptation of Casino Royale, that was made by CBS in 1954 as part of their Climax, with an exclamation point, series. The game to be played tonight is for the highest stakes of all. Climax presents Casino Royale on the bestseller by Ian Fleming. And I just have to say that when you told me that this was on an anthology series named Climax, I had a very classic James Bond reaction, which was like, oh, well, that seems very fitting. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be a dramatically different episode than the rest of the episodes moving forward, where we will have a very particular structure about like what we talk about, the things that we rate and the things we give opinions about. The thing is, we're going to use this structure to talk about it because it's good to have structure. But some of these things are just not... Not applicable. ...in here. Yeah, Yeah. so, I mean, I think we could start off... Why don't we... Why don't we talk about the story first? And then we can talk about... Yeah. I mean, for those of you who are familiar with the broad outlines of Casino Royale, especially as in the Inflowing book or the Daniel Craig adaptation, it follows the structure pretty much. It's just truncated because this is a... You know, this is a 50-minute TV show. Bond's at Casino Royale, probably in France or Monte Carlo, gets accosted by assassins, meets a guy who's helping him, we'll tell you who he is in a moment, and learns of the existence of uh, Le Chiffre, who is the bad guy, master gambler, and Bond is given the task of trying to run Le Chiffre out of house and home in terms of money, get all his money. Yep. And and because all the shift's money goes to bad stuff. Cold War terrorism stuff. And, and and we do actually get one of the sort of hallmark notes of Casino Royale. I'm pretty sure all versions of Casino Royale actually, which is well, we get the the games, we get the card games, and we get the torture. And eventually Bond gets the upper hand, kills the shift and makes out makes off with the co-star lady, which is not the case in in, in 
the other significant versions of Casino Royale. Nope. Quite a very famous story change that they make in this. Uh, but besides all the other story changes they make, <laughs> is most um, of which are just like edits to make character. it shorter. To be fair, yeah, uh, edits to make it shorter, but also like char- there's a lot of changes to characters, which yeah. is interesting, which we'll get into. Um, but the biggest change I think that's made from the original story is that Vesper Lynn is is the femme fatale that James Bond falls in love with and she is working with him to bring down Le Chief and then at the end she betrays him and then she dies. Now how that's been adapted is kind of you know it's up to whatever whoever's adapting it. Casino Royale 2006 is very very tragic. Uh, and I think they certainly portray her in a very sympathetic light. I don't know if that's accurate to the book. You could speak to that. It's. I haven't read the book in a while, I will be honest. Um, I'm pretty sure it's more sympathetic than the book is, but the story beats are pretty much the same, mm-hmm. except for some parts. So big changes in this are also that she does not die. She does not betray him. Um, yeah. She's also not Vesper Lynn. <laughs> No, she, yeah, she is Valerie Mathis. Mr. Bond, don't you remember me? Valerie. Valerie Mathis. We met in a casino at the attic. Yes. Does he still love you, Valerie? Of course he doesn't. Not now. Mathis, who is a male French character in the book, not a major character in the films, except no. for his appearance in Casino Royale. He does appear in two, yeah, he appears in 2006 Casino Royale, but he's not particularly big. Um, so, so the biggest change that they have made to this adaptation is that they've completely rearranged these characters around, which is, except for Le Chief, um, yeah. and it's actually not, not bad in the way that when I say, like, they've literally made James Bond American instead of British. He works for, um, what, the Collective Intelligence Agency? Combined Combined, Intelligence. (laughs) Combined Intelligence Agency, which... It's totally not the CIA, guys. It's not the CIA. It's Combined Intelligence. (laughs) It's it's hilarious. And Um, he often goes by Jimmy Bond, and that isn't even, like, terrible. It's not, because, like, like, we went into this, and you did not tell me that he was going to be American. Because I think I, I would have scoffed. You knew that he was American going in, and you were very suspicious of this, and you thought that it was going to be bad. And I don't think either one of us came out thinking that it was actually bad. No. Well, it looks like you're as lucky as they say. Hey? Oh, you're a legend, old boy. Card sense Jimmy Bond, they call you. I knew you right away. I didn't know I had that much of a reputation. I think what's actually a bit less successful is the character of Clarence Leiter. And folks who are at all... (laughs) Clarence Leiter. The folks who are familiar with Bond in books or films will know that Felix Leiter is a character we will meet immediately in Doctor No and will reappear in a bunch of the Bond films um, he is played Including by, the Daniel Craig movies. Played by Jeffrey Wright in the Daniel Craig movies. Um, but given that they decided to make Jimmy Bond a yank, so to speak, <laughs> here we have Clarence Leiter as a British agent. And yes. it's just less successful. I don't think the actor is as good at playing his role as Barry Nelson, I think that's his name, is as playing Bond. 
I actually kind of disagree. I think he okay. just doesn't have much to do. I think he's a That's good actor, true. though. Yeah. Um, but he also, like, he very much reminds me of somebody that I would see in something like this. Like, That's fair. I get flashbacks to, like, just watching Cary Grant, you know? And here's like, when the thing. he's walking around and talking and talking in his accent. Here's the thing. I think that they, I think, and I imagine you agree with me, that they actually pretty well adapted each character to how they would be if they were, it, respectively, American or British. Mm-hmm. Like, I think Jimmy Bond works, and I think the character of Clarence Leiter works. He fits how Felix Leiter is generally portrayed, but in a British way. Yeah, and I mean... And it's, fu- it's funny, because this obviously predates every other depiction of James Bond and Felix Leiter, but they they do feel like a- appropriate adaptations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a big thing for this to kind of keep in mind is like... Any preconceived notion that you have about James Bond that you might bring to this adaptation is completely irrelevant. Mm. This predates this predates James Bond as a film juggernaut by eight years. Eight years. The other thing that I think is worth pointing out is that this was successful enough, including with Ian Fleming. So, like, CBS approached him in 1958, four years after the production of Casino Royale, and I am now kind of reading from Wikipedia, but CBS invited Ian Fleming to contribute to a long-term series, writing 32 episodes based on Bond, and Ian Fleming began to write outlines for this series. Nothing happened, and he eventually adapted three of the outlines into short stories which were put into the anthology for Your Eyes Only in 1960. A bunch of that material from For Your Eyes Only was then adapted into further traditional cinematic Bond outings, including For Your Eyes Only. But, like, Ian Fleming was into this. Like, he was fine with it. Oh, he was totally fine with it. And it's very interesting to have the context of, like, this very distinct James Bond as he exists in the Broccoli production films which is you know mm. your your doctor knows your everything else apart from two of them yes every it's every james bond film that you have probably ever seen is yeah. a very particular adaptation of james bond that is very much its own thing like that character i think is no offense to ian fleming it's greater than the sum of what ian fleming wrote on the page because i think that this be... climax thing is what he wrote I disagree, having read the books. Okay. No, I won't. I, like, you are correct in your assumption that novel Bond is quite different to cinematic Bond, and I would encourage you and anyone who is interested to read the novels. This is just You don't different. think that they are just an entry into their genre? I mean, in some ways, yeah, but in terms of how this adaptation reflects the books, it's good, but it's not... It's not fiction Bond. It's not Casino Royale Bond, who is ruthless and cruel and like an, a bit of an anti-hero. Mm. And, okay. But Barry Nelson's Bond has some elements of that. But but, but he's ultimately toned, a hero. It's toned down. Okay, that's fair. Then I guess yeah. I would re- I, I guess I would reassess by saying that perhaps this is like... So... <laughs> This reminds me a lot of the episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where Riker, Picard, and Data get trapped in that, like, 
hotel where yes. they're like living out like a 1940s like gangster hotel gambling yeah. novel and they they discover that there was an astronaut that got trapped there and he had this book and the aliens that you know picked him up were like oh this must be what human culture is like and so they just recreated it for him yeah and they read the book and they're like wow this is the most bland like predictable story in this genre that I've ever read. And I'm like, I'm not saying that I thought it was bland and predictable. I, I just mean it reminded me a lot of that, like in terms of that genre. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, and, I agree with that, yeah. And ultimately the James Bond movies that we would get eight years later are not just, they are not just straight entries into this particular genre, which I should no. really look up the name for instead of just calling it like that genre. Yeah. It's a spy gangster noir. Yeah, yeah. I think that's accurate for this film. Yeah. Um, something that actually genre is a great thing because that's the next thing on our list. I mean, it's it's a play. In this instance, it is an anthology noir that ends happily with the hero yeah. leaving and surviving. Yeah. And it's a play done for television. I it it gives me Agatha Christie masterpiece theater vibes. It gives me like this this thing is so far outside of the realm of what we would expect for James Bond, like, yeah. as a to modern the, audience. To the extent that, like, I think if you don't approach it with the, with the right expectations, it is kind of dull. It's disappointing. But here's the thing. I'm somebody who did grow up watching some masterpiece theater because my parents are murder mystery nuts. I grew up on that sort of thing. And watching this was very nostalgic for me. It brought back some memories. Um, hmm. And it's a very familiar format for me. My only frame of reference for masterpiece theater really is the Alistair Cookie segments on Sesame Street. Sure, that's fair. Monsterpiece theater. To me, it's it's very nostalgic in that way. But like, if you go in expecting it to be like, oh, it's like the first. It, this is not like the Columbo like pilot. This is like, oh my god, that's such a deep cut. <laughs> <laughs> this is not prescription murder. I, okay. I don't think it's a deep. I mean, lots of people are thinking Columbo, but I think like explain what you mean. So prescription murder is like it is several years before they actually did the Columbo show, but it is basically a Columbo episode. And then it's like the pilot. And then several years later, they start the Columbo show. This is not like this Casino Royale is not the pilot for these films. Like no. they are completely separate things. We have some things that we, we have ratings and opinions on on every episode. But they and apply I... much more to the later James Bond films, so we're going to skip over them. The iconic James Bond song does not exist here. Um, no, but I do but... actually have some things to say about the music. Um, I was looking up the this film on the James Bond wiki earlier, and it, it seemed to suggest that Jerry Goldsmith wrote the music for this episode, and I was like, really? And for those who need a memory jogging, Jerry Goldsmith was a very renowned American composer. He wrote for a bunch of films, including, I think, all the classic Star Trek films. And for Disney fans, he wrote... One of his last pieces was the score for the attraction Soren. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was like, I think when you make that connection between Star Trek and Soren, you're like, oh, interesting. And, and so I was like, really, Jerry Goldsmith of Soren? 
Turns out it wasn't actually Jerry Goldsmith who no. wrote, the, wrote the score. He was a music supervisor. He was like 25, 26. He was very young. And like I confirmed this with John Burlingame's excellent book. John Burlingame, who, by the way, does a pretty good podcast for Disney called Disney Four Scores, which is basically him interviewing people who score Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, whatever. He has a, a, a book from 2012 called The Music of James Bond, which has no mention of Jerry Goldsmith writing music for Casino Royale 1954. Has barely any mention of Casino Royale 54. Anyway, the book says that the score was composed of existing cues, which were then arranged for the show. And as far as I can tell, that's basically what Jerry Goldsmith was doing spy media fan site the spy command which i will link to this article in the show notes corroborates this with a 2015 clarification to an earlier article they had the clarification pretty much confirms that jerry goldsmith was just acting as a music supervisor choosing the cues and arranging them so that they fit in the show which is kind of a roundabout way of saying yay it's really cool that jerry goldsmith was involved he did something really cool, but he didn't write the music. But it is the same guy. Oh yeah, it's it's Jerry Goldsmith. It is the Jerry Goldsmith we know and love. It is cool. Yeah. But th- as to what you were alluding to earlier, there is no title song. There is no song. There is no vocal music. There is not even any in-universe diegetic music. No, there's not. The next thing on our list to talk about is sets. And once again, we've already discussed this. It was a television play. Uh, It takes place entirely in like three set locations and they are all meant to be within the same building. We have the casino, we have the hotel room, and we have the hotel room hallway. And that's it. And we have a brief shot at the very beginning of the entrance or an entrance to Casino Royale. Yes. Um, now, something that I did find quite amusing is that, so the, the film begins with James Bond, like, escaping from, you know, adversaries that are shooting at him, and he runs into the casino, right? And at first, yeah. we're watching this, and I'm like, who's this random guy? Is that Felix Leiter? Because he's American. But, like, the people, the rich French people that are in this casino are very, very chill about the fact that they've heard gunshots outside. They're literally like... Was the, were those gunshots? I don't know. I mm, there was an I attempted was... assassination, but no one cares. But nobody cared. It was hilarious. <laughs> like very, very chill. That kind of illustrates. We don't have that much to say about the sets. I do think they were pretty convincing. I mean, the casino floor looked like a casino floor. Yeah, it looks. Hotel. It's fine. It looks the good. The hallway was fine. I don't know. Yeah, it's good bathroom wasn't that like that bathtub that bathtub and the torture scene looks nice you know (laughs) yeah i guess yeah the next one is kills and i think nobody died well no the shift dies at the end oh that's true um and that was pretty good i think peter laurie did we mention we haven't mentioned peter laurie at all oh my god good evening mr bond i'd like you to meet an old friend of mine after the war, I was a displaced person, just a, a number on a passport. Lucifer means a mere cipher. Seemed a suitable name. The amazing Peter Laurie is playing the chief, and he's having a grand old time. What a professional. You probably know Peter Laurie from Casablanca, the Maltese Falcon. I know him from Arsenic and Old Lace, uh, where he's playing a German 
like a German uh, plastic surgeon. Arsenic and Old Lace, very, very, very good movie. I've never seen him in anything else. It's, it, I mean, it's great. Peter Laurie, I think, is doing a really, really great job in this role. I've always been able to protect myself. Now they choose Mr. Bond to take me on, and you, Mr. Bond, is very lucky, and and Mr. Bond has cops, and, and I don't like it. It's very bizarre to hear him do an American accent. <laughs> I really, really thought that he just had a voice that, like, like he does in Arsenic and Old Lace. Um, I thought that was his real voice. <laughs> so he shows up in this with an American accent, and I was like, oh my god! He lied to me! This actor! He tricked me! But, um, oh wait, he's also in the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea Disney movie in 1954, the same year. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so that's something I should see at some point. Yeah, I've actually never gotten around to seeing that. But yeah, he plays he plays a nice person in that movie. He's very, very famous for playing villains. And I think he is a pretty good Le Chiffre. He is good. He plays cruel very well. You believe it. Tomorrow night I have to win. I have to have 80 million francs and no one is going to stand in my way, you hear? No one. Yeah, his death becomes satisfying in that way that uh, Evelyn's death is satisfying. I agree. It was a delight to see him because... He's in the thumbnail, because this is on YouTube. Like, you can't really find this yeah. anywhere but YouTube. And, and the YouTube copy is pretty good. It is. It's a good copy. There's clearly, like, 30 seconds that's missing from the, <laughs> the climax of the piece, but it's not enough mm. that you can't easily fill in the blank. We literally just go yeah. from, like, they're sitting down, and then we jump to they're not sitting down anymore, and it's not a big deal. Yeah. But it is very good. Uh, there are no closed captions on it, but... This was lost media for a long time. And there was a rumour that the camera captured Peter Laurie getting up and walking off after he was shot. That is not the case. After you get into the first few minutes of set dressing, like, it does actually get... It finds its pace, and it's actually compelling. Like, yeah. I think we both went in expecting to hate it. And we did not. Yeah. We actually liked it. Would I watch it again? Probably not. Um, but not, it's not because it's not it was necessary. bad. No, I, I read it, it, you know. It's very fun to have watched it first in this project where we are watching all of the Bond films in chronological order. And I think that's the best way to approach it. Yeah. But I think we can move on to our next bullet point, which is women. And we should talk a bit about Linda Christian, who plays Valerie Mathis. Yeah. Um, now, Wikipedia, I didn't look her up before, which like, I should have. She was born Blanca Rosa Volta in Mexico. Oh my gosh, she was a Tarzan. A Tarzan film. Oh, the, uh, Tarzan and the Mermaids, never mind. <laughs> False alarm. The last, the final Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan film. And like, it does seem like perhaps being in the final Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan but also being the first Bond girl are her main claims to fame. And I I don't think she was bad. No. I think she was pretty good. I think she was... She, she was, was good. The, the term I would use, honestly, and this isn't in a bad way, is serviceable. I, that's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> she did the job. Yes, she did. She did not have the meat of the role that like Eva Green has playing at Vesper in Casino 2006. No, but they've... I think that, yeah, it's fine. 
But it's also nice for her to not die. It's nice for her to not die, to not betray James Bond. They are old flames, and there's a fun little thing that, because she's based on this book character named Renee Mathis, and he's part of the French Secret Service, she is part of French Secret Intelligence, which is fun. Yeah. And that's like a fun little twist. We don't do a whole lot with it, but we it is revealed that she's at the casino and she's so close to the chief because she is also spying on him for the French government, um, mm-hmm. which somehow James Bond doesn't know. He doesn't know that she's a spy. Which is a thing that will happen in numerous Bonds yes. <laughs> going forward. That is a Bond trope. <laughs> The next thing on our, on our bullet list is opinions of a Bond veteran versus Sarah on her second or third viewing. Now, the fun thing is here, neither of us had seen this before. No. I mean, I'm still a Bond veteran, and you've still only seen most of the I mean, What did you think? So, I liked it. Um, I think this is hard to say, because my my expertise as a novice, I should say... Um, my fresh opinions are really going to serve us best for the Eon production films. So that's your all the rest of them. I think my my fresh opinions on that are going to benefit us most for those films as opposed to this. Because I feel like I've already said kind of what, everything that I think. Yeah. And it's really that this is just... If you've never seen James Bond before, you will be fine watching this. If you have seen James Bond before, temper your expectations of what it is. Yeah. Because it's but not I the think, James Bond you know. Yeah. I think also if you've never seen Bond and for some reason you go into this expecting it to be the beginning of Bond, which and it is not. in a way, but in the vast majority of other ways it's not. Yeah. And I think that's what we might have expected. That's what I sort of expected. That's pretty much what I expected. I just expected it to be worse. Yeah, and it wasn't. No. What about you? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I said pretty much everything. Like, it's fascinating because it is so different to the rest of them in format and form and to a degree style and casting. And it's it feels naked without the trappings of the other Bond films. Like, even Doctor No, which doesn't have a vocal title theme... Has a has stylized the James Bond theme. The James Bond theme has a gun barrel, has the stylized intro. Has a Ken Adam classic set. Has Ken Adam set. And this has none of those. And it saying all that, it does throw into relief how, like, even though Doctor No is the first of the Eon films and there's still a ways to go before it becomes how, how we know it, they set a lot of things going in in Doctor Now, and we'll talk more about that when we get to it. This is this kind of naked, bare-bones... James Bond. Yeah. Because I think what you just said, the trappings of James Bond and the set dressing, makes me think of how you're one of those people that really loves the MCU films because they are very samey. Because they're, mm. they're comfort. They're comforting to have these kinds of same elements, one film to the next... Yeah, their uniformity is satisfying to me. Yes, and I think that that is also probably the appeal of some of the Eon Productions James Bond movies is that Absolutely. you know that you're always going to get these like innuendo jokes, you know that you're going to get like this suave lifestyle in clubs and you know you're going to get gorgeous women and you know you're going to get Ken Adams sets. Yeah, for me even more than those things like 
more than those sort of direct things are the abstract flavour aspects of the Eon films, which is the sets mm-hmm. and the pacing, and most especially, at least for the first 20 years, the John Barry music. Oh yeah, very iconic. That especially is something that's missing here. And, you know, it would probably feel more like a Bond film even if we just put a compilation of John Barry music over it and changed nothing else about it. Yeah. It makes you realise just how much of the James Bond legacy is linked to these very familiar iconic elements, especially in the 60s and 70s, because there will be a point where we do not have John Barry's music anymore. There will be a point where we do not have the Ken Adams, Kim Possible villain sets anymore. But, but, like, but those are established so well that... We can continue without them. Yeah. like People like David Arnold doing the music for the later Bond films, and people like... Peter Lamont doing the later sets have that template so well established that it feels like a natural progression even if it's very slightly different. Yeah, and like, this is going to sound super cliche, but this special makes me realize that Eon production, James Bond films, they are not just Bond, they are a state of mind. Like, yeah. they are a whole packaged meal and not they are just a James feel. Bond. Yeah. Yeah. They are a feeling. They're a vibe. Like, yeah, they're a vibe. They, yeah. Like, and, and it's so, it, it poses this interesting question for this one of like, is it James Bond? Which, of course it is, but it's James yeah. Bond without any of the trappings that it Neon is... Productions would go on to add that have become so iconically linked to James Bond that we don't think of one without the other. It is almost, um, let me just count these words because one of the last things we have. We actually have this challenge for each other for one of our final things, which is to describe the film we just watched in a sentence or less than five words. I can actually describe it in five words. Almost Bond in name only. <laughs> Almost Bond in name only. For your eyes like, only. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's fair to say that it is just Bond in name only, because there are other... It is Bond. It is. Like, there are things that are identifiably Bond about it. But, as you so well led into that and inspired me to make that, to, to say that, it's not there. No. Now, is there a way you would describe it in a sentence or five words or less? Probably the name's Bond, just Bond. I like that. The name's Bond, just Bond. Almost Bond in name only, thematically similar, yeah. subtly different, just yeah. like this and the rest of them. All coming like down to that. this idea that, like, it's a fascinating question. It's it's like, oh, this is a philosophical question for the ages. Is it James yeah. Bond if there aren't innuendos? If there's no song! I think with that we got to get to our final takeaway, which is, would we recommend it or is it worth watching? It is worth watching if you want to have any context for it. If you like Masterpiece Theater, I think you'll probably enjoy stuff like this. I think it's much more worth watching if you just want to have that piece of James Bond history with you. I think it is a curio. Yes. Like, I think you pretty much said it's spot on. With that, I think we got to wrap up. It's the end of our first episode. We have just over two minutes of Zoom timer left, and I think we can get this done before that's over. Yes. Did you have a good time? I did have a good time. I think we talked a little bit long. I did too. Yeah. 
I mean, that's how it goes with podcasts. By the time you're listening to this, it'll be much shorter than how it seemed to us, which is how it should be. Sarah, my love, where can people find you? Uh, people can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and... What are those handles? Sarah the Scrivener. That is Scrivener with no vowels. We will put these details. Yes, and... I am also one half of a YouTube channel that is currently on a hiatus uh, for the last two years (laughs) called The Princess and the Scrivener, but um, I would like to get back into it. The pandemic just kind of killed my creativity, but um, we are getting back into creating now, as you can see. And you can find me as GuySmiley22 on Twitter, as pretty sure it's Michaela Disnet on Instagram, but all of this will be in the show notes. Thank you for joining me. Sarah, thank you everyone for listening. And we will see you soon. Yeah. Shake, don't stir. (laughs) There was no alcohol in this!